Affordable housing is a basic human right, and to build a better Kentucky where all our people can thrive, safe and reliable housing is absolutely essential. I wanted to be better and meet those goals, and it wouldn't have been possible without Kentucky housing. Knowing that I had a roof over my head, um, food to eat, knowing that I didn't have to want for anything, um, that's a that's a big plus. Being a single parent and not having to worry about um, you know housing, uh, paying bills while you know being in school. But I am here to tell you that there is a lot of beauty in this part of the county. Bringing it home with KHC. of Bringing It Home with KHC, Kentucky Housing Corporation's podcast. I'm Molly Tate, and I'll be your moderator today. My guest today is Drew Bowling from Kentucky Fair Housing Council, formerly known as Lexington Fair Housing Council. In honor of April as Fair Housing Month, we wanted to delve into fair housing challenges and rules, especially fair housing in the digital age. With more people searching for homes, advertising, doing business online, we know new problems are arising. Drew, welcome. Can you quickly outline what the purpose of fair housing is and why it's so important? Yeah, uh, thanks Molly for having inviting me on the show. Um, so fair housing is a law that's been around uh, for a little over 50 years as the United States have a, has a thing called the Fair Housing Act. And um, currently, it basically just defines discrimination and the folks that you can't discriminate against in any kind of housing transaction. Um, commonly, it's renting and home buying, but it also affects mortgage lending. Um, appraisal bias has been a thing that's been in the news a lot lately um, with specifically black households having their homes valued less than uh, white households. And that's been tested in ways of like black households have had an appraiser uh, give them an estimate. Um, they felt like that was low, kind of scrubbed any evidence that this was a black household, had some white friends come. And, you know, sometimes that appraisal difference is as high as like, like hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, it also, you know, it involves things like zoning. Um, the Biden administration just up, um, resurrected an old law uh, or policy called affirmatively furthering fair housing, which puts a little bit of emphasis on cities to do a little bit better planning with desegregation. But essentially, the folks who are protected against discrimination in fair housing law, um, you can't treat anybody differently or unfairly in any, house, any housing transaction on the basis of their race, their skin color, their religion, um, their national origin, um, which is kind of close to like ethnicity, but legally not exactly the same. Um, the sex, which since 2020 has become a big umbrella, um, that originally just meant like biological sex, but that also now includes legally um, sexual orientation and gender identity as federally protected against discrimination. Um, familial status, which basically just means you're somebody who has children, minors under the age of 18 that live with you. You can't be treated differently because of that. Um, and then disability, which uh, includes like visible disabilities. So somebody who uses a wheelchair, um, has some sort of um, apparatus like that, or non-visible uh, disabilities. So maybe somebody with an anxiety disorder who needs like a support animal, or um, somebody with maybe epilepsy who needs a service animal to kind of help them, you know, 
alert them that they're about to have a, an attack. Um, I think that's all the ones that I covered. Uh, that, it's always kind of a hard thing to kind of remember which of my seven fingers are which when I'm counting them off. But um, but yeah, that, that's what fair housing protects against um, in any kind of, or that's rather who, that's who fair housing protects under against discrimination in any housing transaction. Perfect. I couldn't even scripted a better overview. <laughs> you Thanks. really set the tone for today. So I was just going to say, if anyone, uh, very quickly, if anyone has a question or thinks there's been a violation, they should visit your website, right? Correct. Yeah. Um, we've just recently finished a rebranding project. We, like you said, used to be Lexington Fair Housing Council. Um, but we decided to change our name to Kentucky Fair Housing Council because we've always been a full state um, service area. We've always, it's not just been Lexington. We've provided legal representation and advocacy to folks anywhere in Kentucky who have been affected by housing discrimination. And so we felt like it was time to have a name that better reflected that. Um, I personally was always like having to explain like, yeah, I know we're Lexington's in our name. Our home office is in Lexington, but we actually provide services to everybody. So now hopefully, you know, that's a little more um, intuitive for folks. And also maybe that will help folks in more rural areas when they're trying to search for resources. Um, just type in like Kentucky Fair Housing Laws into Google or uh, something like that. Maybe, you know, that'll help them get connected with us a little easier. Um, just having Kentucky there um, instead of just Lexington. Perfect. And just starting out, what do you think are the main challenges to fair housing right now? Um. Enforcement is probably the number one. I mean, that's with any law. It's only as good as well as it's enforced. Um, we are a small office and Kentucky's kind of a big state to have um, kind of a small uh, but mighty office enforcing it. Um, and, you know, it's not just us. Like, we are big, we're, we're an advocacy organization, so we're always, like, there to represent folks in their best interest who feel like they've been victims of housing discrimination. But, like... It's more than just that. It involves human rights commissions. It involves courts. It involves cities willing to pass ordinances to protect people and then enforcement ways that, that those laws can be enforced. It involves county attorneys. Um, sometimes it involves the Department of Housing and Urban Development um, when they want to offer new guidance and so forth. So um, while, you know, a couple of minutes ago, I described who all is protected under fair housing law. I mean, you might notice there was a lot of folks that I didn't include. I didn't mention anything about age. I didn't mention anything about marital status. I didn't mention anything about source of income protection, which would be from uh, re uh, prohibiting discrimination on, against folks because, say, they use like a housing voucher or something like that. Um, the federal fair housing law doesn't include a lot of folks like that. Um, there might be local ordinances that have taken those extra steps to extend protections to folks like Louisville has recently added a few and um, but they're the only one in Kentucky right now um, and then prior to 2020 a lot of folks in the LGBTQIA plus community were pretty vulnerable especially those in rural areas um, vulnerable to discrimination because fairness ordinances existed in a lot of local places um, but geographically, the vast majority of Kentucky still didn't have protections for it. So in 2020, there was a Supreme Court decision, um, Bostock versus Clayton County. Um, the way that opinion was written by Neil Gorsuch um, basically extended those protections federally to folks on the basis of social, um, sorry, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity. So that was a pretty significant update. It was probably the most significant update in almost 40 years to fair housing law at the federal level. 
Um, but like I said, there's still a lot of folks that um, are, are not protected. And again, just enforcing it as well, because there's a burden, you know, it's a legal system. There's a burden of having evidence. Um, it's a little easier these days because we all have uh, recorders and uh, cameras in our pockets, you know, i.e. our phones these days. So it's a little easier to, you know, maybe document things for folks than maybe it was like 10 or 15 years ago, but there's still a burden of proof to prove it. And it's also, it's very difficult for folks who are targeted by systemic discrimination or oppression, you know, like folks of color, maybe black folks or indigenous folks, they might know they're being treated differently, but it's just like, well, that's just how it's always been. So how do you prove that? And so those systemic problems that still exist, like appraisal bias, um, that's, those are really hard to root out. Um, so we still have a lot of work to do. And the United States has existed for a very long time, and we've only had fair housing law, like I said, a little over 50 years. So we have a lot of um, dismantling of previous structures to do, as well as building up and the protections and building um, you know, more inclusive communities where people get to live where they want. Um, and so there's, yeah, we've got a long ways to go, but I think, you know, given the short amount of time, there's been a lot of really significant movement as well. Excellent. Well, that's a great segue when you were talking about how everyone has recorders now, phones, and then also social media. And in communications, we monitor KHC's social media accounts, and we get a lot of questions about fair housing all over the map. And so if you're a game, we would love to um, play a game with you called uh -oh. Illegal or Odd. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Uh, this is probably the point where I should tell you, I'm not an attorney. I just work for one. Um, I'm a social worker, so I come at this from a slightly different perspective. So I might be a little more schemey than a lawyer would have you uh, say. So I will just give you my best unqualified legal opinion about it. That's exactly what we want. All right, good. You're the expert. So first of all, illegal or odd uh just tell us what you think it is and explain your answer all right illegal or odd a landlord asking you to submit a picture when submitting an application online that's definitely odd that so i uh, kind of look uh manage a lot of our investigations i would investigate that for possible fair housing violations um just because that is that is odd enough it's like why do you need to see that um, I, you know, I just start to wonder why you would require that of folks when they apply. Um, and the obvious reason is like, well, you want to see what the race is. Right. Um, and that is, that, that would, that would merit more in, uh, investigation for me. It's not necessarily illegal at that moment, just based on what you said. It's definitely odd enough that the fair housing organization that enforces the law is going to look into it. Okay, great. Then that makes us feel better. Cause that's what we thought too. Obviously yeah. we send everything over to you guys anytime there's any sort of inquiry, um, but you never know. Yeah. Okay, illegal or odd, a landlord asking you to submit um, a screenshot of your credit report from Credit Karma. That's definitely odd. Um, I don't know that that's illegal. My guess is that somebody's trying to sidestep spending money for an actual credit report um, and is just, you know, trying to take a shortcut, which I can't knock them for. But honestly, if I were the landlord, I would worry about somebody sending like a different credit report that's not mine. Um, so there's probably some risk they're taking by doing that. So I don't, wouldn't say that's necessarily, elite, necessarily illegal. Um, it's strange, though. Okay, perfect. 
And then what about a landlord asking you to submit your social security number? Um, that's not necessarily illegal. Like there might be some applications that would ask that because they might do background checks. They might do credit checks. Um, that's not these days too, that might be less odd just because some applications really want to verify like employment, how long you've been, been employed. And that's really tightened up a lot since 2020 when the pandemic started really affecting everything. But one of the things was um, landlords like really wanted to make sure they started snooping a little bit more and asking like, did you lose employment through COVID? You know, because um, a lot of folks did and therefore lost income, which they couldn't pay their rent with. And I've seen some landlords like trying to screen that, um, even if somebody is employed. And so I don't know. I mean, I, it, it's odd to me, um, but it's not necessarily unusual. Um, and it might be just part of like a regular background check. And what you were just talking about, is that allowed to ask if you lost employment? It is. That would be a red flag for me, though. Um, if I were a renter, which I was until last year, uh, and I've been renting for like 20 years. Um, but uh, I, I would I would approach that cautiously. It's not necessarily, you know, means that they're doing anything wrong or going to be uh treating you unfairly but it's that's uh, i would hesitate because that might be indicators of other things that they want to try to control about your home you know it is if you're renting a place that's your home and you have a right to that home and so you know i think that's a part that we need to kind of there's a narrative that we need to flip a little bit that like, yeah, it might not be somebody's, the person who lives there might not have their name on a piece of paper somewhere that says, okay, they they have a mortgage for it or whatever, but it's their home, physically, spiritually, whatever, that's their home. Um, and so I would wonder if somebody were, in, were snooping so much into my history about that, like, are they going to respect the fact that this is my home? Um, I don't know. Uh, like I said, I, I would... I would approach it cautiously. It might not be nothing. And, you know, they might, that landlord might just be following advice they got off of a Facebook group or something like that. Um, but nonetheless, it, it's a new thing. It's a little odd for me. I would be a little skeptical about it, but it might not be, you know, the smoking gun or whatever of like discrimination. And then my last question is uh, a landlord asking for in-depth banking information, like account numbers, mutual funds, etc. Um, it's a little weird. And I don't think you'd be obligated to disclose that. Um, really, the, you know, you just have to demonstrate, can you pay for it? Um, and if you have income that does that, I think that should be sufficient. They might still ask that. And you might say no. And they might say, well, I don't want to rent to you for that. And that might technically be legal to do. But that also is one of those things where it's like, my better judgment would be like, that just doesn't feel right. So, um, so yeah, again, not, well, not necessarily illegal, um, a little odd. Okay. Now you mentioned Facebook. And so we wanted to talk about Craigslist and Facebook marketplace. What do landlords need to know when they're posting their listings? Because, you know, anybody can become a landlord. There's no training. And so I don't think a lot of people know about fair housing laws or they just flagrantly disobey them. So I just yep. um, well, the fair housing laws still apply regardless of where you post a listing for an available place. Um, Facebook recently, I think, just had to settle a very big settle, uh, very, very big lawsuit 
because the way their advertising algorithms is are you could target certain demographics, which allowed you to target demographics based on like race or children or something like that, which is definitely a violation of fair housing law. So I think they've had to revise that um, for folks who are posting listings for housing. Um, that's a little, there's a barrier there that also, you know, we're talking about like how much can like landlords vet potential renters. Like it's immediately linking your Facebook account to like a landlord's Facebook account. And they might immediately have access to like photos that you have uh, that posted on public or other posts. And so they're, they're probably going to be looking at you um, a little bit. So I think that's one of the cautions about, you know, responding to a Facebook message or a Facebook listing. Um, Craigslist is a little more anonymous, um, but I do see at least in Kentucky, in the cities used less and less. I think in rural areas, it's still used a little more. Um, there's also a lot of scam listings, um, on Facebook as well. I mean, one of, part of one of my jobs is to, uh, test for discrimination among housing providers. And I've had a lot of, um, when I've kind of just screened some properties, folks have been like, oh, well, it's not really mine. It's my sister's and she'll meet you there Tuesday at five. And I'm just like, this sounds sketch. <laughs> um, so I think just, you know, definitely all the things, same things apply, you know, don't provide any, you know, personal financial information on like Facebook Messenger to somebody who's appears to be have uh, have a place to rent because that might be a scam and you don't want to unintentionally provide like your social security number or, you know, maybe, you know, any kind of bank references or anything like that, that um, to somebody that you haven't vetted enough and you don't know that in fact, that's a real person. Um, based on just, you know, a random listing, because there's, um, there's a lot of that out there, unfortunately. Now, you were talking about how a landlord can look at an applicant's pictures. Conversely, how does that work? Um, almost everybody has a personal social media account now. So how does that work if you are a landlord and you seem above board in your posting, but then somebody looks at your personal page and you making racial or derogatory statements there, political statements. So just as a hypothetical, um, you know, what if somebody from a housing authority posted something racist there and then an applicant was denied and then they said, well, it's based on this person's feelings. Would that stand up in court or what do you think? I don't know if that would stand up in court. Um, again, this is not my legal interpretation. It's just as... I always say this information wants to be free, so I'm just giving information. Um, I, I think there's enough to merit further investigation. I have no idea if, like, if uh, if I applied to like the Louisville Metro Housing Authority for public housing, got denied, and then whoever I was interacting with, I decided to go look them up on Facebook and saw that maybe they had posted some either hate speech or politically different stuff. Um, I would probably enlist the help of an office like ours to be like, hey, I don't know if this is true, but there's just a lot of like kind of correlations. I don't know if it's causation. Right. Um, could would you could you all look into it? And we would. Um, and I it, I think there's a weird. I don't know where the line is because obviously you know free speech is a, a thing that people have, and. I have posted some things maybe on my own personal account that maybe my agency wouldn't endorse, you know, just for example, um, hypothetically. So like, you know, for the same reasons, I don't know how much somebody's personal Facebook page 
gets used. Um, now, if there was a pattern of practice, like let's say there was a case manager who was reviewing applications at a housing authority and somehow we did a open records request and found, well, they've denied housing to like 10 consecutive black applicants, but then this white applicant was approved. And there was some maybe like anti-black posts on their Facebook that when it's a pattern of practice like that, that's when it starts to become a problem. And that's what I usually try to investigate to prove. It's like, it's not just a one-off there. Are, there you can't, it's harder to explain just um, if it's like consistently happening. So I don't know that necessarily, you know, it would trigger a lawsuit simply because you are expressing whatever opinions you have on Facebook, but um, it might, it would, it might merit some investigation from an agency like ours because if you're a housing provider and you're actively saying that you think certain people are superior to others because of race or because of kids or disability or whatever, I mean, I'm going to have a problem with that. And so I'm going to look into it. Um, maybe there, some, there's some magical spell where that person has separated their personal selves from their housing job and they do treat people neutrally. Um, I would say, I, I won't say that's impossible, but it, maybe it's unlikely. Um, but yeah, it would definitely, it would merit some investigation for sure. Um, just to rule that out, in fact, because um, that's part of our job too, is not just to root out discrimination, but we also want to rule it out as well um, to make sure that, um, you know, there are allegations sometimes, maybe there are other uh, explanations um, for why somebody was denied housing or something like that. Um, but that's what we want to be sure of, right? That discrimination didn't happen, or if it did happen, we want to take legal action against it. And I would also think people who are submitting um, inquiries or violations that they think sometimes they're like they're hesitant to to submit um, anything to you guys because they think, oh, it's just me, or maybe I'm reading this wrong. So when would you encourage people to contact you? Um. I say always never hesitate to contact us. Um, and we are pretty client driven. So like if some client, like somebody lives in like Richmond, for example, and says, Hey, my landlord's doing some shady stuff. And I'm like, all right, well, what would you, how would you like for us to proceed? And they might be like, well, I don't want you to contact them because they'll know it's me because I'm the only black person that lives here. And I'm like, I got that. Okay. Well, we have, we have other ways to investigate that. Um, so, you know, if the client doesn't want us to, contact the landlord on their behalf, we're not going to. Um, and so I think that's one thing a lot of folks are worried about. And I think the thing they're worried about is like being identified and retaliation, right? Those are the big two fears. And that's like always, that comes up when we do talk to clients and we do talk about like contacting them. They're like, well, what's going to happen? Is they going to evict us? And fair housing law prohibits discrimination against folks who are just simply trying to protect or secure their fair housing rights. Um, <clears throat> It's, you know, it, it, it can be a little messy to enforce, but they are protected in that regard. Um, and so I always tell folks, like, if they just want to give us a tip and not even, you know, give us their name, like our website has places for people to do that. They can just call our office to do that. Like I said, we have our own ways to investigate it. That doesn't necessarily need a client with a name there to be our um our impetus to start an investigation, we can just get a tip and do it. Um, so, and I always say like, it, it costs us nothing. It costs them nothing to just look into stuff. Uh, that's what we're here for is to just investigate. And 
find out if there are fair housing violations or if they're not. And somebody can just call us, be like, yeah, there's this place uh, in, you know, Paducah. Uh, just, I've seen them, they're, they're kind of moving out all the black people, moving in white people, but I don't want to, I don't, I don't want to be next. So don't, please don't tell them it was me. I'm like, that's fine. Wait, wait, I got, I got different ways to investigate that. And I can, I can confirm or deny that. And so I always tell folks like, just let us know, um, we could do that work. And it really, like I said, it's free. We're a nonprofit. So all of our services are free. We, um, you know, we'll look into it regardless and, we will either maybe follow up with that person and see like, hey, we've had evidence of this. Do you want to be a part of this case? Because you, you might have legal standing for the, you know, maybe some kind of damages or something like that. And if they don't, we'll, 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 we can we ourselves can file it because we are, you know, we are, we, are, we are an enforcement mechanism for fair housing law. And therefore, you know, we also have a mission to do this. And anything that disrupts our mission is also a violation of fair housing law. Perfect. Sounds ominous. We have other ways to find out. Yeah, I can't play all my cards, you know. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and when you were um, talking about the LGBTQ plus, I, I plus, um, I apologize if I missed any uh, groups. Um, you know, you said that they had that landmark legislation in 2020. We've gotten a number of inquiries from people in that community um, about some sort of discrimination or they've seen something on a, a personal Facebook site or something else. How have you seen increases in um, cases against or involving people in that community or what have you seen? I haven't seen any increases, but that's not to say that it hasn't been steady. Um, it's been persistent, you know, and even in cities where there have been ordinances protecting folks on basis of sexual orientation and gender identity for years. Um, we haven't seen them yet. The General Assembly in Kentucky, the state government this year, is passing an avalanche of bills targeting the livelihood, the health, how, what, how, what have you, of um, queer identified folks, trans folks, and so forth. And so if these, even if these laws don't pass, I expect that there, I'm worried that there will be an increase in discrimination allegations or evidence of uh, uh, discrimination, because that's kind of when when there's such a persistent mainstream narrative targeting a certain type of person. Like sometimes not everybody knows what the law is. I mean, it's like what you mentioned earlier, um, and I could tell you some just wild stories about people tre treating the law like it's only a suggestion and not something you have to follow. Um, I, I even regardless of whether those laws pass or not, and I hope, you know, they don't, um, it would not surprise me if we do see an increase in discrimination complaints based on people's sexual orientation and gender identity, just simply because like, you know, that people will just assume like, oh, I heard they were passing this law. Isn't that the law now? Um, and that, let's just say too, whatever bills are passed in Frankfurt this year, it doesn't subvert the right of folks to have housing in Kentucky, like those housing laws are going to be there one way or another. Um, so and I, I would caution housing providers to be too broad in their assumptions of what those laws cover, because um, nothing's changing about fair housing law. That's at a federal level that gives those protections. And so anybody who might infer that like, oh, well, they're, you're, they're prohibiting drag performers from performing, you know, a thousand feet from libraries or whatever. So if I find out my renter is a drag queen, I'm not, I, I'm not going to rent to them anymore. Like that's going to be a problem. Um, 
and and other just sort of um, just kind of trickle down effects of that. So the, I I'm worried that we are about to see a maybe increase in discrimination complaints um, uh, against that against members of those communities. Have you seen an increase? Well, not an increase, but I guess just in your daily work. Do you get more complaints from rural areas or from urban areas? Um, I think just because of just the numbers game, we probably get more from like Lexington and Louisville. But we have our we've, it's kind of been twofold. We've been seeing a little more activity from rural areas, and we've actually been taking a more proactive um, approach to trying to do more informational campaigns in rural areas. Um, we just started that this year um, with the, the the area in like northern Kentucky of like Boyd County and Greenup County. Um, and I think it's yielded some connections that we've made in those communities that we hadn't previously had. Um, and I, I do think and rural housing problems, I think, are a little different than metropolitan problems. Um, just because like communities are super small. Um, it's not an exaggeration that everybody kind of probably knows everybody, you know? And so like it's, and there's probably, I think the risk with that is you have a lower proportion of folks who are landlords. And so they might all know each other and they say like, Oh, have you ever rented to Bobby Jane Watson or whatever? And they'll be like, Oh yeah, don't rent to her. And like, it's just an informal, you know, sort of, um, registry in a way of like folks they won't rent to and it might not be because it was like oh they got evicted or whatever it might just be like oh she was late on rent a couple of times and someone or if she was a survivor of domestic violence it'd be like oh i'm not going to rent to her and they're not going to say that's reason why but um you know i think there are there, there are real concerns that in that in that regard um that are more persistent in smaller communities just because you know everybody's just a little closer together um and there are just less we have we might have less of a presence there. There might not be um, legal aid available in those places. There might not be a human rights commission that's trying to promote fair housing. So it might just be um, just a lack of reach from all, um, all all I guess advocates or organizations that would be there hypothetically to help folks. Um, and so yeah, I do think rural rural rental housing or rural housing in general um, has definitely got like some unique problems and we didn't even talk about like the problems that arise when you live in like a mobile home park because there's like all kinds of different issues with that as well i mean i still think it's super weird that you can own a home but somebody owns the la- the ground underneath it like the literally the land it's on it's like old coal towns where they would buy the minerals underneath your house and just demolish your house to try to get to them and be like oh we do own the land even though you own your house like it's weird um, so yeah, there's a lot of unique problems to rural areas that um, I think definitely need some attention. What would you say is the main problem in Kentucky? What do you see the most of? <clears throat> well, like everywhere, we are having an affordable housing problem. Um, we're having a difficulty in housing supply. And that's not because I don't think housing exists. I just think there's a lot of bank property. Um, there's We've had a like in Lexington, for example, I saw something on like Forbes.com, I think, that like of the country, Lexington saw, Lexington ranked fifth in the number of purchases of single family homes by real estate investors. So these aren't owner occupants, like people who are just going to be in your neighborhood. These are people buying up homes to then rent. And so when that inventory of single family homes is shrinking um, everywhere in Kentucky, you're, we're kind of, 
I fear moving towards an eventuality where we just have a permanent class of renters because there's just no housing. And I don't think the answer is to build more housing. I think we have a lot enough. Um, and then, you know, there's also the prevalence of like Airbnbs and Verbos and, you know, who knows how, we don't even know how many of those are in say like Lexington or whatever. And who knows how long those are sitting vacant. I mean, housing exists. We just aren't maybe utilizing it the best way that we can. Um, so, of housing supply inventory and then housing costs are certainly the biggest ones. Um, and I think fair housing wise, the issue that we'll be, I think we'll be talking more and more about is discrimination on the basis of source of income. I think we're seeing maybe starting to see some like bigger um, transformation and change of the way like we've maybe resegregated cities by allowing discrimination on the fact of someone has just a housing voucher, you know, it's a single parent, maybe with a couple of kids and one job, <laughs> unfortunately does not cut it because minimum wage is really low. Um, and so, you know, right now, except for in Louisville, it's legal to just deny an application only on the basis that someone is going to have a housing voucher. And I think that is keeping people out of a lot of communities that they want to be a part of. And I think that is keeping folks, um, unfortunately stuck in areas that maybe they don't want to be in because they are not kept up properties. Um, and those are sometimes the only, um, the only affordable properties that they can get with a voucher. So I think, um, I think that we'll see more activity in that area and throughout Kentucky, probably in the next few years. That's a good segue because, um, obviously home ownership is a huge issue for us right now and how to make it more affordable for everyone to to become a homeowner. And I recently attended a conference um, where they were showing how realtors would take two people who had the exact same salary, the exact same housing needs, but they just were of different races, and they would show them homes in different parts of town. Um, and so I just wonder, how do you think, and then with appraisal bias and with lack of representation, uh, Nicaea just did a, a podcast last month um, with two lenders who were talking about how we can increase minority or underrepresented people's um, home ownership. So, what do you think? What do you think are the areas that we can improve, or how do you think that we can um, make home ownership more accessible to everyone? I think on all points that you mentioned, um, real estate lending, um, like realtors, like I, I think if every notch of the step needs to probably to be re reviewed and examined. Um, there's, there's a really great documentary, um, that was came out a few years ago that talked exactly about what you were talking about, like, you know, equally qualified people going to the same real estate agent and, um, you know, the only real difference was their race. They were matched in age, gender, uh, everything, income, and they were just being shown different houses um, in different areas, sometimes not even in the areas they wanted. Um, well, at least the the, the, the black uh, home buyers. Um, I, I, I worry sometimes that like racial discrimination and bias is so ingrained in some folks that like they might not even be aware that they're doing it. And I think that's a really dangerous um, component when folks are out there, you know, how trying to is maybe maybe trying but presumably trying to assist people with one of the biggest purchases they're going to make in their life um and then 
not even giving them the fair opportunity to really get the house that they want. Um, our office is going to be starting some lending investigation because I think there's lots of evidence of that. Um, there's still news stories that happen with that, um, where folks are maybe because they're like brown or black, they might qualify for a prime loan, but they're being offered some pl- subprime rates for no reason. You know, they're they're equally qualified, the folks, uh, but they're just getting kind of you know. I would say predatory terms and conditions on their loan, um, which is not really based on anything other than like what I could say is like probably the race. And it's not just a race thing too. You got um, people who are maybe on paternity leave, you know, who maybe are going to return, return the work, but are denied loans because of that. And it's just like, that's also discrimination. Um, so I think, I, I honestly think like there's uh, the whole industry probably needs a lot of like really intense review and some probably also just reconfiguring of how we're doing it. Um, you know, the, the even like access to the capital needed to get a mortgage um, is kind of weird to me because to me, if you're a renter and you've been paying your rent at the same landlord for like five years and you're never late, you've to me that demonstrates you're a safe risk because you can make a monthly payment for housing. But like those folks who maybe are also living paycheck to paycheck, they're just not going to qualify for a mortgage. And the way class has been uh, racialized in this country, that's going to disproportionately affect a lot of black and brown households um, because that just traditionally have been kept out of um, the, 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 the pathways or the, the systems that you can access to create wealth. Um, and that's the problem with the appraisal bias is like, it's not enough these days to just make sure that black and brown families have opportunities to buy houses because now we have appraisal bias. So like, we're actually devaluing the home simply because they're black households. Um, that's, you know, we, I think the, the vigil, we have to be vigilant about it. Um, because there's a reason the housing laws have been, uh, updated er, er, since 19, um, 1968 is because discrimination goes through permutations to get harder and harder to find. It, it, it is going to find a way um, to, 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 you know, to discriminate. Um, and it's, uh, it, it is a problem. And so I, I think, I think it's worth reviewing how we do a lot of stuff and that might not be a popular opinion, but um, sometimes I worry that we're trying to fix a problem inside of a system that doesn't want to be fixed. And so I think there's, um, I, I think we're, there's maybe some more creative work that can be done outside of the box, if you will. And how did the pandemic impact all of this? I mean, how did it impact their housing and access to, to Um, it, I, it affected fair housing probably across the board, um, just because the folks who were vulnerable to eviction got even closer to eviction. Um, just, just, you know, folks living paycheck to paycheck, um, people with families, people who are taking care of uh, family members in their own household. Like, as soon as, like, you know, <laughs> we found out that, like, it wasn't just the renters are living the paycheck to paycheck. It kind of seemed like in a lot of cases, landlords are living paycheck to paycheck off of their renters' paychecks. And so, you know, there's a problem there. And I think there's a disproportionate fairness um, or disproportionate protections to renters because, you know, as a mortgage holder, there are mechanisms to try to keep in your home that, you, you know, you're not going to lose your home in two weeks if you miss a mortgage payment. But like if you're a renter, 
in some places in Kentucky, you can be literally looking at losing your home within three days of missing a payment. Like, um, there's, I'd be hard pressed to find some kind of financial mechanism or transaction anywhere where the penalty is that swift, that quickly, um, or, or that, that strong, that quickly. So I think the pandemic, all those problems that happened to because of the pandemic were there before. I think that was just the pressure point that happened that exacerbated these very stressed systems to the natural breaking point, which it was already kind of close to. Um, So affordable housing, um, uh, like eviction diversion programs and stuff, these were all needed before because these problems were there. It just, um, it kind of just cranked that volume knob all the way up to 10 and it was just a lot louder and it was harder to kind of avoid it after that. Um, so yeah, I think, um, it definitely. And then we also had just like, there was in 2020 and 2021, the housing industry just kind of went a little crazy too. Like there was just a lot of, um, home buying interest rates are really low. So people were buying up a lot of stuff. Um, it got really competitive because there were more people wanting to buy than people selling. So, People were getting outbid by, you know, real estate investors who had more capital to just go above asking price. Um, so the, it did, there were, you know, like I said, all these were problems before, but it just kind of was like problems on steroids uh, after the pandemic um, descended on us. Excellent. And then can you tell us some stories? You did mention that you um, could tell us tons of stories. Can you give us some of uh some of the examples, I mean, obviously nothing specific, but yeah. Um, you know, one of the stories that I like, uh, telling and that I think about a lot because it's kind of like a grounding story for me of why we do this work. Um, there was a, a renter who had lived in a place for several years and in 2020, when the pandemic happened, Um, this person was a man in a relationship with another man and the partner was out of state. And so governor Bashir said, stay home, don't go anywhere. And I was like, okay, well, you just happen to be visiting with me. So I guess you're staying here for a little while. Well, the landlord found out and, um, there were other, uh, hetero different sex couples that were lived in that building, but the landlord found out that this man's boyfriend had been there and, uh, gave him an eviction notice for having an unauthorized occupant. And he was like, there are other people like, you know, there are other couples that live here. I just feel like this is because I'm gay. And um, so, you know, he didn't, the landlord didn't say anything incriminating or whatever, but we investigated it with some of those uh, foreboding or cryptic mechanisms that you alluded to earlier. Um, and, and eventually we had enough evidence to reasonably bring a case to uh, the local human rights commission. And we actually ended up proving discrimination actually had happened. He had been treated differently, even though the landlord hadn't given him any, you know, red flags or smoking guns, you know, he'd even denied it, but we were able to, you know, what through our mechanisms of like discrimination testing and so forth, actually get enough evidence that like, well, we, what, what we can't do is rule out that this decision was made because he was gay. And so, you know, that he ended up getting a settlement and, um, you know, ended up being able to use that money to go towards, you know, more permanent housing, you know, like a home that he was buying. And I mean, just for somebody in that transition to go from like being a renter to, you know, having money to, you know, support a home that he's buying, that to me is like, that's closer to justice to me because it's like this person, it wasn't just like, oh, this person's just going to stop treating you 
uh, unfairly and life will go on. Like we actually saw, you know, a, a change in status for somebody. Um, so I think those sorts of cases where we really do make a difference are the things that I like, the stories I like to I talk about and tell because it's like, you know, th- there is a fork in a road and everybody's fate or life where it's just like where you can kind of pinpoint like, our office got involved and this, this, this person's path could have gone that way, but because we were able to do some work, it actually went this other way that was better for them. And so, um, you know, we've been able to do that for folks. Um, and again, that wasn't uh, somebody who just, you know, had a letter from a landlord that says, I'm evicting you because you're gay. And it was that easy and straightforward. It was, you know, it was a lot of work from our office. So I think, you know, those are the sort of things I want, I like to emphasize to folks that like, it may seem like you don't have a case, but let us figure that out for you. Because like I said, we can investigate it. We have um, a lot of different ways to gather evidence that maybe you haven't thought of, or maybe, you know, we have access to do that. Maybe you don't. Um, so I do think that as sometimes it might seem hopeless, um, Sometimes we can find hope. Not the what is like, what is the Rihanna song? Found hope in a hopeless place, or something like that. Like you know, it's kind of like that sometimes, right? Yeah, yeah. And then they can come stand under our umbrella, and we'll just do it. But uh, but uh, on a red outfit and have some white people, (laughs) some white outfits. Maybe like uh, what was the guy from Spider Man, Tom Holland, doing the whole thing too? Yeah. Um, But anyways, uh, yeah. But I like it. So the story is is like. Sometimes it might not seem like, you know, you've got a good case, but we might be able to still help you out with that. And then just as we wind down, what are your parting thoughts? How can we make Kentucky a more fair and equitable place with regards to housing? I think there are a lot of things that haven't been fully explored in Kentucky. Um, The concept of like community land trusts is something that has been very limited in use here. And I think folks who want to protect communities and protect the communities they live in, that is something worth looking into. Um, I would encourage folks to maybe Google that so I don't have to take up more of your time talking about it. But community land trust essentially just kind of, it moves from an individual model of ownership to basically entering an agreement with your neighbors that like our land is joined and we all are in this together. So like you can't just, you know, lose a house uh, on one block or lose one community member on one block. Like we're all kind of interlocked together. Um, Land banks are another thing um, that I think can be utilized for say like affordable housing or repurposing vacant housing. Um, I'd also think it'd be cool to see some like innovative stuff around like cooperatively owned housing. Like what's to say like, um, you know, an apartment building with like 10, 12 units couldn't be owned by the people that live in that instead of why we need like uh, a landlord over it to manage it. Those people are capable of managing their own homes, you know, and there are plenty of like facilitators or, you know, mediators that can be brought in to kind of help this, you know, work through problems because that happens, you know, people just don't always agree. But I think there are different models of ownership that we haven't fully explored. And I think Kentucky is a great place because um, I was just talking to somebody in uh, some, some organizers in Ashland, Kentucky yesterday about like, it may seem like you don't have a lot of like rights or protections here. And I think my job as a social worker is to reframe that to say, you have a lot of opportunity to explore different um, different ways of, um, 
of a building community here that maybe aren't traditionally like, oh, the single family, single owner household uh, pathway that, you know, a lot of us in America have uh, have that narrative that we should um, all work towards our own private housing. And what if we didn't do that? What if like we did like kind of opt into like land trusts? Like that would definitely be more conducive to preserving a neighborhood's being uh, populated by owner occupants instead of like real estate investors like that would protect that would that would have probably helped against gentrification in our bigger cities um so i think there's a lot of like creative solutions to housing problems that maybe haven't been dealt with and those aren't going to be for everybody i think also like you know the, i said this earlier the law is only as good as it's enforced and until we have more robust sharper uh teeth to enforce fair housing law, um, it's probably going to be an uphill fight. And then what are some tips that you would give to landlords as we move forward? What do they need to ensure that they're doing um, in practice and in posting? Well, uh, the basic thing I would say is to treat everybody the same and give everybody the same opportunities. Um, so if you're going to ask for pay stubs from some applicants, you better make sure that you're doing that of everybody. Um, making, uh, making sure that, and I, I would encourage again, the flip of this narrative that like you might own that house, but it's not your home. So you wouldn't just walk into another person's home without, you know, giving a lot of notice or you really wouldn't walk in the, somebody wouldn't walk into my home if I didn't answer at all. I don't care if you have a key or not, like nobody's doing that. Um, and I think there's really needs to be a narrative change that like, these are people's homes. We need to respect that. It's not your home and other people are just living in it and paying you to live in your home. It's, it's their home and people have a right to their home. Um, I think, um, the other thing is <sighs> documenting everything when you have a problem, you know, like this is a service industry providing housing. It's a, it's, 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 a, it's a service industry and there are components with like healthcare that are related to it. And so I think, you know, trying not to just figure it out on your own. There's so many resources out there to help. Our office can help you. Like, um, we will gladly tell you like, yeah, it sounds like you've done everything you can. That's not a violation. We won't have a problem if you need to move forward on that decision or this or whatever. Like, we are as much there in advocacy for folks who feel like they've been victims of housing discrimination as we are to folks who don't want to unintentionally discriminate against folks. Um, so I think that is a very underutilized resource. Um, that being like, you know, folks is calling us and being like, Hey, you got any suggestions about what I can do here? Um, cause sometimes I think, you know, there are like Facebook groups of landlords and sometimes that becomes a little bit of an echo chamber where they're just kind of like, Oh, I got away with doing this. You can do this. And maybe that's not illegal, but is that the best thing to do? Um, so I think maybe getting suggestions outside of, of you know, the, 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 those areas, um, might be, you know, help more helpful. Um, and then, yeah, I guess just also understanding that like, everybody's got struggles and, you know, it's not personal if somebody, you know, doesn't pay rent or doesn't, um, maybe they've left the place less clean than it was when they moved in. And it's, you know, I, I think we should maybe reconsider like how much we are willing, re reconsider our willingness to punish people for that. Um, and 
having recently bought a home that it's been kind of demystifying about the ways you manage a home. I was like, I've always thought this was really hard because every landlord kind of gave me that impression. Um, and you know, it's not ideal. And so therefore, you know, if people ha don't have a fridge and they're calling you a lot, uh, it's because it's not been working for two days. Like if you feel so, you know, if they, you know, you can, you can, also be creative and be tell them like, okay, well, if you have it on a credit card and you want to go pay for that fridge right now and have it delivered by Lowe's this afternoon, and I'll take it off your rent, you know, instead of just being like, oh, I'm trying to find somebody to come work on it and I can't because, you know, nobody else, you, we wouldn't do that in our own home that we have control of that, you know, a bank says we own. Um, so I think again, you know, like just working with your tenants to try to make sure that they, you know, everybody's on the same page and everybody's, you know, working towards the same thing, which is like, just need a home. And then hit us with your address again. What, All right. Um... Yep. So we uh, are the Kentucky Fair Housing Council. Our address is 207 East Reynolds Road, uh, Suite 130. We're in Lexington, Kentucky, and zip code's 40517. We're in an office building right by the White Castle, so you can go get some chicken rings right after you come talk to us. And what's your website? It's kyfairhousing.org. And Drew, do you have any parting thoughts for us? Anything else we should know? Um, gosh, no. Um, sometimes I wonder if my boss is going to clutch his pearls a little bit for some of the things <laughs> I've said today. So I probably won't say much more. <laughs> but I do appreciate you all thinking to include us um, on your podcast um, because I think this is a part of it, right? This is part of like what we need to do is not just doing client work or, you know, investigating stuff, but just talking about this more um, and putting, making sure there's as much access as possible for people to just hear about these stories to hear about what, you know, what options are available to them and maybe even make them feel a little less crazy because like, you know, they might got some weird situation they're in. I'm like, Oh, I, I didn't know that was like something that was happening everywhere. So again, normalizing these things and just making this conversation prevalent wherever we go because it's the one thing regardless that all of us probably have in common is we live somewhere whether it's in a home whether it's in a tent whether it's in a shelter we all live somewhere so it is the thing that we all have in common no this was fantastic i really appreciate you joining no, us thank today you. well that's a wrap for bringing it home today we truly hope you've enjoyed our discussion if you'd like to find out more information about kentucky housing corporation please feel free to visit www.kyhousing.org. That's www.kyhousing.org. If you like more information about this podcast and blog, you can also visit www.bringingithomeky.com. That's www.bringingithomeky.com. If you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can also email us at communications at kyhousing.org. Thanks for tuning in and we hope you bring it home with us again.